Hi, and welcome. This is Dave Dijewski. I'm your host of the M&A Source podcast. In today's episode, we're going to dive into a topic that inspired a lot of interest in Orlando in May. That was during our spring conference for M&A Source. And Working Capital had its own breakout session there. But this topic of Working Capital came up over and over again at lunches, dinners out, and even around the bar at night where, you know, all the real networking work gets done. And there's good reason why Working Capital comes up so often in our community. Today, my guest and I are going to explore a few of those reasons together. And assuming you're ready, let's get started. Welcome to the M&A Source Podcast, a podcast brought to you by M&A Source, a nonprofit professional organization that provides training and education for small to mid-sized business mergers and acquisitions intermediaries. In each episode of the podcast, we will interview leaders in the M&A world to discuss education opportunities provided by M&A Source, trends in M&A markets, and useful insights provided by the experts that use them. Thank you for joining us. Okay, today we're lucky to have Ryan Hurst with us to talk about working capital. Ryan is a partner in RKL's Business Consulting Services Group, and he oversees financially oriented consulting services for his firm. And this includes things like transaction advisory, valuation, litigation, succession planning, and even forensic accounting. Welcome, Ryan. Uh, Please say hello to our VIP listener. Uh, Hello, and uh, it's a pleasure to meet you. Yeah, I know, Ryan, you're going to bring a good story or two to the show today. But uh, before we get started, I think it's good that just to get to know you a little bit. I was on your website and I found your career goal statement and I found it was uh, fascinating, actually. Your goal was, this is a quote from your site, it says, my goal throughout my career has been to help business owners look up from the daily grind and consider the big picture view of their company, what it does and what it can do for them. So what's the before and after story of Ryan Hurst? And I'm specifically wondering, how did you go from growing up in a family-owned business family to becoming a husband, father, and from what I can tell, a pretty serious athlete with such a significant career goal? Yeah, so for, for me, it's it, I had the, uh, the pleasure of growing up in a very small family-owned business, a, a business that my uh, grandfather and a, and a partner had started uh, a few decades ago back in the 60s. And then my, uh, my mom and uncle then uh, moved into the ownership group in the, in the 1990s. And I think uh, it was really through them I got to see a, a lot about how, you know, how small family clo- uh, closely held family businesses work, how they operate, how, you know, you're never really off. Uh, you know, you're always bringing your work home with you, whether that's uh, that's that's physically or whether that's just emotionally. Uh, and I think, you know, through through them, they ha- they had a, a you know great little business, but it was one of those classic, very small businesses that you you kind of feel like you're always working in the business, you're always putting out fires, you're always doing something just to kind of survive. And for me, I kind of saw it and thought, wow, this would be great to work with similar business owners and not just help them survive. Uh, but to help them thrive, um, help them to, to pick their head up once in a while and kind of see beyond the, the day-to-day grind. And that's kind of what took me to, to, to what I've been doing on the, uh, the financial consulting side. Do you find that you still sort of maintain some of those old habits that you had from, you know, you learned from your family and your small business days? Uh, certainly a little bit. I mean, I think that, you know, some of the, the, the skills or, or characteristics, you know, the work ethic, I think will, will always be there. Um, you know, the desire to, to, to get things done, the desire to help people, 
uh, in a, in whatever form uh, that that takes shape. But you know, even for me, it's uh, I have to remind myself every so often to to kind of pick up my head and not just get lost in the in the day to day grind. But at least it's uh, you know it's an area that that's that's passionate about and you know love you know love opportunities to kind of work on my business and not just uh, not not just be working in it. And you clearly have a, a really great background for connecting with small business owners. And, well, we have a lot to talk about today. So there are some things that our listeners should know. Uh, we are going to jump deep into the, well, not totally deep. If you want to go deep into working capital, you need to be a paid member of M&A Source and get behind the firewall and look at the uh, webinars that we have. So we are going to have a discussion, but we do have to set the table, I think, a little bit about what is working capital. So, Ryan, help us to... Uh, understand what is working capital before we dive into that subject. Sure. Uh, you know, it's interesting. You want to know why working capital is so complicated. It's because we can't even agree on a definition of what it really even means. So you're asking the most fundamental question you could possibly ask about the the subject. And I'm going to say with the, the tried and true answer of it depends. Uh, so if you go into an accounting textbook, um, you're going to see a very simple definition, current assets minus current liabilities. Uh, if you ask a valuation person, you know they're going to answer it in a in, in a in a way that probably is that, but maybe slightly modified to say, well, uh, maybe we'll remove some uh, indebtedness, so your current maturities of of notes payable, or maybe we'll remove um, you know current maturities of loans payable or short term debt out of the current uh, current liabilities. You ask a transaction person. And we can complicate things like none other, but with really good intent, uh, which is to say it depends in every single situation. And, and there's some, you know, sort of categories of, of accounts that will say, well, depends on the situation. Sometimes we include it, sometimes we exclude it. The sort of the base definition from a transaction level, and I'm thinking about, you know, kind of lower middle market type type transactions. Uh, is current assets, but exclude cash because most of the deals that we do are are cash free. Uh, you'll exclude um, you know any kind of non-operating assets uh, that might be included in in that. So yeah, things like uh, employee loans are are a big one, or sometimes you have like related party uh, types of of receivables and and whatnot. And you'll typically kick out those things and. Uh, on the current liability side, you're you're going to kick out the debt because of a debt-free transaction. Uh, you'll oftentimes kick out the income to any income tax payables or or uh, distribution for S corps distribution uh, payables, which are basically in a lot of cases another form of 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 a tax payment anyway. Uh, you'll kick those types of items out, and then you get into the all-encompassing other debt-like items, uh, and that's where the account the accountants come in and have an awful lot of fun and. I'm sure we'll be we'll be digging into some of those topics as as we go, but uh, you know for now that's kind of the uh, the least complicated answer I can give you, and we're already uh, diving in pretty deep. <laughs> yeah, I agree. It sounds, you know, as I've explored this subject, I've considered it to be a verb. Um, so you can do quality, you can do. Um, uh, working capital calculations, or you can do a working capital approach or an approach to working capital. Whereas what we're trying to do is we're trying to come up with a tool basically that uh, helps us understand the probability of default, almost like a quick ratio. So there's 
when I hear one person say working capital, they're talking about that that standard accounting definition, assets minus liabilities, and we're using it as a performance measure to figure out if the business is viable and you know whether or not it's upside down. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also that aspect which you talk about, which is kind of a number, right? So what is the number we're going to assign to all the paperwork? That right, says, right. Yeah. Uh, I had lunch with a very smart uh, business intermediary um, down in Orlando, and he said something to me which I found really useful. He said, you know, the working capital doesn't belong to the seller. It doesn't belong to the buyer. It belongs to the business. What do you think about that? That's a, it's a really interesting statement, one that I have not heard before, but it's 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 fascinating. And and you know when you think about the way that lower middle market deals are generally structured, I think that's that's the attempt, uh, but it's oftentimes lost in, in on the participants. Yeah, I think it's important because what is working capital in another form? It's really a, a product of cash flow, uh, or in a lot of cases, the lack of cash flow, or at least the deferral of cash flow. Um, you know, any small business owner knows that that cash is 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 important. That cash is king, to use that that old e- expression. And you know, it's what working capital does is it basically is your cash conversion. And it says, well, if I'm a manufacturing business, I have cash day one, but I got to invest in inventory and I got to invest in people. So, okay, then I sell my inventory. Well, when am I actually going to get paid? So I've probably got receivables for a while. Um, I can at least maybe delay my vendors for a little bit on the the liability side. But how long is that going to take me to from the moment I invest that first dollar of cash in the business to actually get hopefully more than a dollar of of return? And uh, in in the transaction world, we get very hung up on, you know, the calculations and the definitions and what's in and what's out. But it really, uh, you know, that's a great uh, perspective there because, you know, that's that's what it's really all about. So the what's in and what's out discussion sounds very similar to me to uh, a recast in the business brokerage world or a quality of earnings in the mergers and acquisitions world. Those we, where you take all your income statements and your and your balance sheets and you figure out what's in and what's out. And it sounds to me like we're applying pretty much the same kind of methodology. Uh, we're applying judgment on various line items based on the type of business that we're dealing with to decide whether it's in or whether it's out. Is that fair? Oh, that's that's totally fair, and it you know it it also comes down to you know we we can't even just blindly look at say the face of the balance sheet because you never know what something truly is. Uh, you know you have your balance sheet, which oftentimes is a summarized uh, uh, a summarized analysis of what's actually in the you know the the GL accounts and your trial balance, and even then you might have some mis you know, some inaccurate reporting misstatements you know, really trying to understand things, you know, you might have something that's described as we've seen, oh, it says line of credit. Well, no, that's not our line of credit. That's actually our credit cards. Well, those are two two very different things uh, with it. And so it's really important to kind of dig in and, and know exactly what, you know, exactly what's going on there, because uh, you can get fooled pretty quickly. Yeah. And it sounds like in some cases, it's not even a matter of like deliberate fooling. I mean, you might have a a business that has fully depreciated assets off of the balance sheet, but they're still there and they're still material to uh, the operations or the performance of that business. Absolutely. And it's no, it's it's very rare we see any kind of uh, deception being employed or intentional deception. But, you know, oftentimes there's there's cases of just Especially with smaller businesses, it's they're not going to have the most robust accounting that you've ever seen, and 
that's how you know us as accountants come in and, and we can add a lot of value. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that entirely. And, and I also kind of think of it as, as an emotional issue. And I know it sounds strange to apply emotions to a spreadsheet or a mathematical formula, but, you know, what your uh, next buyer is worried about is getting to those accounts receivable. They're going to buy the business on day one, and they might not realize revenue from what that business has been doing until day 60 or day 90. And how are they going to bridge that gap until they get to those receivables? Exactly. Especially when you're dealing, you know, when you're when you're dealing with with some of the more sophisticated buyers that often oftentimes have a lot of funding, they're certainly concerned about that, but they're probably concerned of it more from, a, you know, how much are we paying? Is this a good investment? Those types of things. When you're dealing with, say, the individual looking to go out there and buy a business because they're looking to maybe leave the lifestyle they used to have and they have an entrepreneurial spirit and they're saying, I'd rather buy something that exists rather than creating something of my own, but I have a passion for this, that person's probably thinking, well, how am I going to put food on the table for the next two months until we actually start to collect some of our bills? Like that's a totally different different uh, meaning to, to, to things compared to the, the more financial crowd. <laughs> for sure. And, and what do you do with your sellers that, that say, no, no, you told me it was cash-free, debt-free, and so all the cash comes with me. What is this working capital thing? That just must be accounts receivable. Yeah, it's 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 a it's an interesting conversation. I mean, it ultimately it's it's it, it comes down to as much as we try to make it scientific, it ultimately comes down to negotiations and perspectives and and just sometimes it's it, you you can get a situation with a seller or a buyer where they might totally understand from an academic standpoint that this is this is what it means and this is what it right, but it just doesn't work for them. Like there, it's just it just does not work because. It might not cash flow for the buyer. It might not be enough for the seller. We thought as a seller that we were going to have enough uh, proceeds coming out to, you know, to do whatever's next for them. But it turns out that even though we get it, it just no longer, no longer works and it might not meet their financial plan. And, and what happens, Ryan, when we just ignore the working capital component of our transaction altogether? Yeah. What well, there, there's, there's two stages to that. There's the, the altogether stage, which means you go through it, you close the deal, and then you know, maybe there's a true up mechanism or something that you deal with 60 or 90 or 120 days later, and you deal with it then, and then oftentimes it comes very contentious because you've got lots of assumptions, competing assumptions and expectations, and it doesn't necessarily pan out the way it was. Plus, you've already closed the deal, so money's changed hands, you know, you're con- you're contractually obligated at this point to to flow to go through with it, but you don't really know what what that means. You know that we've seen uh, you know plenty of times over the years, but now it seems like it's addressed in the process of deal negotiations and prior to a purchase agreement uh, being signed. However, what we're not seeing nearly enough is that that gets negotiated uh, soon in the deal. You know, we would prefer to have that at least at at some level discussed at more of the letter of intent stage, you know, where you're having some of those key provisions uh, uh, being negotiated, specifically the purchase price, you know, the, the, the terms, how it's, you know, is it cash? Is it going to be funded over time? What does that look like? The working capital is so important that, that some of those discussions should really uh, be had up then. What happens is they get delayed, and oftentimes it's one of the last items to get negotiated and confirmed, and it's still such a significant one. And 
from a seller's point of view, at that point, a lot of times you've given up some of the leverage that you've had uh, in the negotiations and the buyer can be on the driver's seat. And, you know, some buyers can be very fair and others maybe not as, as fair and could take advantage of, of things at that point. So how important is it to come up with the working capital number versus coming up with the formula that we will all agree to use in order to derive the number when closing happens? Sure. I think, well, when it comes to setting, you know, setting a target, which, you know, a lot of um, businesses in the M&A world with, uh, with you know, lower middle market and middle market deals will have a, this concept of a target. And it's basically... We set a number and there's all sorts of math you can do to get to that number, but we set a number. And if you're above, if the seller comes in with proceeds above that number or working capital above that number, you keep the excess. If you come in short, you give back the, the, the shortage. That's, that's it in, in a nutshell. So some of it's about setting that number there and that, you know, you, you get pretty precise. You set, here's the number we're going to put in the agreement. However, you also, I think it's important to understand the formula, the mechanics, the thought process behind that, because you, what you're not going to know is the actual number. Even on the date of, of closing and money sh- changing hands, you're still not going to have a pure read on what the actual number is, which is the exact reason why nobody has or f- few businesses have books that are closed the day of the you know, of month end or, or on the on year end. It takes some time to figure out, you know, what are what are some of the, the, the things that are going to be coming out and that we won't know until after the fact. You know, what was the, 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 the final inventory balance? What was the final uh, account payable balance? So it takes some times with those. So you need to make sure you have a formula or a mechanism or a way of going about it uh, to ensure that there's consistency with the way the target was calculated, as well as consistency with everyone's understanding uh, on how we're doing this. And you may not like the results, but you can at least feel that the process was fair. So it sounds like you're you're sharing your process across the table. So buyer and sellers are both agreeing on that process right around the LOI stage in the ideal transaction. Yeah. Is that right? Ideally, yes. Ideally, that's that's the case. And, you know, as you, you know, as you go throughout the due diligence stage, then you know, it's important to continue to refine that and have, you know, communications and, and you're never going to get it perfect you know, when you're at the LOI stage, but, you know, you can at least get, you know, some of your inten- uh, intentions out there. Um, you know, thinking about it at the due diligence stage where you start to dig in a little bit more, you know, one of our recommendations, and we've seen it, you know, seen it a lot more over the last, last few years is, is to actually put a sample calculation uh, as say an exhibit to the purchase agreement. Because it's really, I, I got to envy the lawyers uh, who have to write some of the stuff that we come up with and put it into words. And it could be a very simple Excel yeah. schedule, right. yet to put that into words that are meaningful and people understand, it, it's, it's like an impossible task. So it's sort of like, well, why not just put the Excel schedule in the back and say, well, had we closed on May 31st, this is what it would have looked like. Uh, and you won't get every last little possible scenario of of things that could change, but you should at least take care of the easy ones and, and avoid some of those misunderstandings. <laughs> I, I totally relate to that. It's great. Um, my question now is, as professional mergers and acquisitions intermediaries, what kinds of things – we might have a deal like a seller. We might have a seller for – anywhere from one to six months before we actually bring it to market. We're doing all the, you know, the, the prepackaging, we're doing all the analysis. What kinds of things can we do to put ourselves in a, and our seller in a good position for that working capital discussion before it goes on the market? 
Sure, sure. So a part of what we do, a, a lot of our uh, transactions practice is focused on quality of earnings analysis. And, you know, quality of earnings, there, there's kind of two usages for, for quality of earnings. There's sort of the technical definition, which is looking at the quality of the earnings of the business. I know I'm just being redundant with what it's called, but, you know, you're kind of looking at more focused on EBITDA or discretionary earnings or some sort of earnings oriented metric and saying, you know, do we know what the recast looks like as well as do we know what, you know, sort of the underlying quality of revenues, you know, is it repeatable? Is it one time? You know, what is, what's some of the, uh, of going on there? But really when quality of earnings gets used, um, you know, in, in terms of, of the report, oh, I want to get a, I want to get a quality of earnings report. It goes beyond, you know, just that, that earnings, EBITDA, discretionary earnings stream, uh, and typically will encompass uh, a working capital analysis because of the importance to get ahead of this. Uh, so that's a big, you know, that's a big thing that, that can be done. Um, you know, it's helpful because it starts to put uh, sellers' perspective on things out there in front of the conversation. Uh, and you can kind of have something to fall back on that, that whether it's before the LOI stage or whether it's in the early due diligence stage, you can say, look, this is our position. Uh, on some of these things. If you're going to disagree with it, let's have those conversations now, because if they're big enough of a conversation where we just can't uh, come to terms, then maybe it's not worth either party continuing on with things. Uh, plus, it helps just to, to kind of memorialize things over time. And as you come back to it later on in the process, if you haven't completely nailed it down, you know, there's something that's at least documented in some form that you can say, look, this is where we've been all along. The only thing we really need to do is update the numbers for more recent month end closes. Uh, but the position's been been uh, been discussed and conveyed in the past. All right. I think that really gives a really good sort of overview and recap of what working capital is and how it fits into a deal. I think our next phase in our conversation is going to be the story time. And and you and I talked ahead of time before we got together here, and, I, and I'm, I'm asking you to come up with a, a good, an average, and a really bad story. Like, you know, three short stories, one where things kind of fell apart, one is the typical sort of average transaction, and then the third one is one that just went off the rails great. And I'd like to come back in about 90 to 100 seconds and dive right into that while you think about those stories. And we'll be right back with Ryan Hurst and Working Capital. This episode is brought to you by M&A Source. Formed in 1991 as a specialty section of the International Association of Business Intermediaries, our mission is in supporting and developing the highest standards of professionalism among our members. Our members enjoy two annual conferences, credentialing as mergers and acquisition professionals, best practices, networking, and deal sourcing for the lower middle market. We also bring you these podcasts for free and behind our membership paywall, in-depth educational webinars brought to you by subject matter experts from around the world. As a member, you can take advantage of free and discounted services used by M&A professionals every day. These discounts and benefits can easily cover the price of your membership. We bring you virtual data rooms, research databases, E&O insurance, digital marketing services, valuation software, marketing and deal support, and more. You use these things in your practice anyway, so why not save some money? Becoming a professional member of the M&A Source or the International Business Brokers Association is easy. Just start with our website. It's linked for you in our show notes and have a look around. 
10 minutes from now, you can be a member and taking advantage of all the benefits that membership gives you. I hope to personally see you at our spring or fall conference or earlier. If you'd like to contribute to our show, to our newsletter, or just leave a comment, the links are just one click away. They're in your show notes, so just scroll up and find the one that you like. Add your voice and perspective because your voice matters. Thank you for being a listener of our show. Now, let's get back to our discussion. All right, Ryan, you've had about... 90 seconds to think of those three great stories. Where do you want to start us off? Okay. Uh, yeah, I think I have some, some good ones. Uh, let's start off. I, let's, let's get the bad out of the way. Let's get the ugly. Okay. Uh, you know, let's get, get through, get through some of the ugly. So, you know, fortunately it's a, it's one where there was in the end, it worked out well. Uh, but this was a, a deal that was certainly challenging and it was one of those classic deals where it, it, it was like a cat. It had nine lives and it almost used every single one of them. Uh, we've had negotiations that occurred over several months and uh, it just kept, there kept being one thing on uh, uh, one thing or another that, that, that keep wanting to, to, to put this, this deal down. And one of the, the later issues was working capital. And, and that was a situation where we were working with the, the seller of business. Um, they had, a uh, large buyer that's kind of an industry consolidator um, come in, sort of specialty type of, of more expensive, big ticket type of, of consumer products. Uh, so this is one where um, working capital wise, there was a lot of noise in there. Some of it was their own doing. Some of it was, you know, a uh, holdover from COVID and, and some, um, you know, some, some inventory issues that, that had been there. Uh, a few things that, that we um, talked about there, uh, one was they definitely had some inventory issues just with some, um, you know, old, ob not necessarily obsolete, but just some, some old uh, inventory that they hung on to. It still worked. It wasn't the type of thing that ever really becomes, certainly doesn't have a, a dynamic where it, um, you know, where it expires or anything, but, you know, some of the old parts. Well, you get some of the bigger advisors that will come in, do their due diligence, and whether it's useful or not, uh, they will come in and say, well, if it's over, you know, some time period old, you know, whether it's one year, two years, three years, if it's older than, you know, that time period old, we're just going to kick it out and pretend it doesn't exist. And our clients saying, well, we use this stuff, but we might order more than what we need because we know it's tough to get or you get a big discount or something. It's just how they kind of ran their business. So we shouldn't be getting that kicked out. Uh, because it has it has uh, it has some value. So how big is this deal, Ryan? Uh, this was a deal that was, I think, all in around sixty to seventy million. Okay, sixty seventy million. And and what what did your team look like going into this? Uh, you're talking about with RKL? Yes, with RKL. Uh, so we had uh, we had three to four of us that were working on it uh, throughout. We had had kind of a a a Q a Q of E light phase uh, coming into it. Uh, as well as then just kind of the overall deal advisory uh, of the client, just helping them through the process and negotiations and whatnot. There wasn't a, an investment banker involved in this situation because it was kind of a one-off that they were that they were working with. And which, incidentally, we had the conversation several times amongst the advisor team. It's like, well, would we be better off, um, you know, having them hire an, an intermediary and get some competition? And because at times they felt like I think they were at the mercy of the 
the buyer. But that's a, a little bit of a different topic, but probably certainly an, an interesting, uh, n- interesting one nonetheless for uh, you know for for the listener. So you're representing a sixty million dollar um, project. You've got about four people on your team. What were the goals of the seller in this transaction? Yeah, ultimately they were looking to have a liquidity event, not quite retirement age. So it wasn't, I want to sell my business because I'm going to retire, but, you know, sell the, sell the business, have a liquidity event and, and ultimately to be able to kind of pursue other interests, um, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, put some of those, those funds to work and, and, you know, kind of, uh, go down a different path. Okay. And what was their timeline? How much did you, how uh, the, much time did you have to accomplish all this? Uh, sure. So while we got involved, it was a it was a client of our firm that we had worked with uh, for years. We got a, we got involved, and it wasn't necessarily a defined timeline. Like we wanted to be out by you know such and such. I think it was one of those classic. Well, they came knock the buyer came knocking at the right time. Uh, so let's you know let's entertain this, and then you know you start to go down go down a path. And you know, we got ourselves involved in the execution stage pretty early on. But you know at that point it was they were. Uh, the seller was pretty committed to doing this deal, but at the same time, it needed to be the right deal for them because there was no real set timeline that they had to be out or you know, there was a health issue or something like that. Okay. Okay. So what, at what point in the transit, this is the bad scenario, right? So at what point mm-hmm. in the, in the transaction life cycle or the timeline did the subject of working capital come up? Was that early or late? Well, it was early in the sense that we put it out there early. Um, like I said, we did you know kind of a mini sell side quality of earnings, and that included really it was more an Excel data book version where we could kind of put our position out there on EBITDA and put our position out there on working capital. So the the buyers had that uh, very early early on in the process uh, around the LOI stage, um, let's say. In terms of them being willing to um, discuss that, they kept wanting to defer to. Uh, their accounting advisor, and they need to do their own analysis. We can't take positions on it. And, you know, looking back on it, we, you know, I think we should have been a lot more firm with that and said, well, let's establish a position. But if something doesn't line up with that, something comes up, we can be flexible here where, you know, we can't, we we can't be unreasonable, but, you know, we should have pushed a lot harder to have um, gotten that fleshed out up front. I think it was, you know, just a situation where, you know, oh, okay, this our client saying, well, we'll we'll be okay, we'll be okay, and not appreciate. As advisors, we should have pushed them a lot harder to get out in front of that. Do you think that was a gambit on their end, or was that just something maybe lack of understanding, or what was driving that hesitation on their end? I think it was, you know, going into the process, they had known the buyer, they had a lot of respect for the buyer, and I don't think they knew how contentious it could ultimately get. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was, you know, there was a lot of trust involved uh, in the early on stages. And, you know, I think that trust definitely eroded throughout, you know, throughout the process. Which is what we want, right? I mean, so once that trust started eroding around working capital, what were your, what were your options as that started to unfold? Yeah, I think it really came down to, you know, it, it came down to at the end saying, look, this is this is where we are. And, and you know, this and other things saying we're going to have to be in a position where we need to walk away from this. You know, this is not this is not going to work. And ultimately, I think then the buyer realized there was a ton of opportunity in it for in it for the buyer with what they could do with this. Uh, and I think they ultimately came around and said, OK, we got to you know, we got to stop trying to negotiate every last little point here. Uh, and then look at this in in terms of the, the you know for the good of the deal. And there had to be some reminders about that throughout. But it was the moment that 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 
you know, we really just kind of dug our feet in and said, yep, we're, we're going to be done, um, that, that they started to come around. So what, what do you think a novice might, what kind of mistakes do you think a novice might have made if they were dealing with the same situation instead of, instead of RKL, instead of you? No, I think the, the, the big thing, one, they probably wouldn't have uh, come in with any preparation whatsoever, wouldn't have an understanding, wouldn't even have the ability to know, you know, what is being set forth, if that's even fair, reasonable, normal, whatever the case may be. Uh, so a lot of times when you're dealing with, uh, you know, the more sophisticated buyers, they'll put their own analysis together. They'll actually share it and say, here it is. This is how we're coming up with the number. Here's what we think it should be. But if you don't necessarily know what this is all about and what's kind of customary, you don't really have the ability to go back and, and ask informed questions, challenge some of the assumptions that are being made. And you start to take, a, you know, it's a negative seller's position, a very favorable buyer's position. Yeah, that makes total sense. So uh, how did your work on the working capital result in a positive outcome for this project? Sure. So we were able to, um, you know, we were able to get some, uh, you know, at least be able to come meet him. I don't know if in the middle, but at least meet him part of the way there on some of the obsolescence and get it that it wasn't, you know, quite an, a, as big of an issue for our client, as well as the other interesting thing with this one is they, it's very, it's a very project oriented business, very large um, kind of custom build type of stuff that they do. Uh, and, they had one that had been basically completed. It was 98 or 99% completed. The only thing that was really remaining was shipping. However, the customer was saying, well, don't ship, don't ship, and we have the right to tell you not to ship. So this thing had been sitting in, in inventory on the books. They, they didn't, they used a, a completed contract, not percentage of completion accounting. So it's been sitting there in, in inventory in the book, inflating their inventory, which inflates working capital. And they're basically saying, wait a second, I have this huge project that's basically sitting on there. The buyer's going to walk in. And then at some point, they're going to finally get to ship this thing. And really, they're going to get all the profit and they're going to get all the reward of this thing by putting this thing on a truck uh, and, and sending it off. Like That doesn't seem fair. So we had a lot of, you know, a lot of arguments over exactly how that played in. You know, do we strip it out of working capital? You know, is this sort of a, a not, it's not a non-operating asset, but is this sort of an excess asset? And I think ultimately with that, you know, we were able to make some some strong headway there and look at this and say, look, let's let's kind of look at these financials without this. This is not a normal, you know, a normal case. Let's strip this out and kind of treat this as a separate um, driver of value here. Uh, and ultimately, I think the sell. While there was a lot of uh, dispute over that, I, we got to a good place there. And I think you know to toot our own horns a little bit to have the advisor team in there helps a lot. And we can have some of those those tough discussions and take some of that burden off the uh, off the business owner. So you chose in your approach to kind of diffuse the situation a little bit by separating out the the issues and then tackling the ones that you could come to some consensus on before you went back to the hard ones. Is that what I'm hearing? Uh, generally speaking, yeah, I'd say it was probably a little bit more, you know, uh, parallel discussions with some things. But, you know, I think isolating that did help uh, because it, it provided at least a little bit of clarity in some muddy waters. How do you eat an elephant, right? One bite at a yeah, time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. So that was your nightmare scenario. Um, where do you want to go next? Let's give us let's get another story out. Yeah, let's go. Uh, let's kind of go the let's the average or middle of the road, so we can kind of finish up on a on a positive note. Um, okay. You know, see what it looks like. So, 
Uh, middle one, I'd say this is there's no such thing as a standard case, but this one is one that you would see a similar fact pattern often enough. Uh, so we were working with a, in this case, a buyer, a uh, strategic buyer that was uh, that's PE backed. Um, so it was mostly working with the, the the company and not the the PE firm, but the PE firm was involved here uh, a, a little bit. All right, give um, us some so of we the, were give us some of the context on this one. How big is this? What what kind of industry is it in? And and who's on your team? Sure, uh, con- consumer products, um, consumer products business. Uh, call it a deal size. I think was in the thirty to forty million dollar area, although it's uh, not recalling quite as uh, you know, quite as well there. Okay. Um, you know, consumer products oriented, much smaller types of items, the types of things that you know. It's certainly not you know dollar five dollar items, but you know two hundred three hundred dollar items. So it's not the you know the huge projects that you have. Uh, on that, on that first one that that I mentioned, uh, faster so there's, cycle there's times. a little bit of background. Uh, Fast, what's that? Faster turnover cycle times and yeah, definitely faster. You know, faster turnover, uh, faster turnover times. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So this is one where you know the seller, um, you know, certainly was run like a lot of smaller family-owned types of businesses where you know, the accounting's okay, it gets the job done, and you know you you comply with. You can kind of comply with what the government needs uh, with taxes. You know, you have some idea of whether you made money last year or not. But, you know, there's no real kind of like real time type of information, decision making, anything like that. Um, you know, you kind of they come in and it's very inventory driven business. Inventory is done once a year. Uh, and, you know, that's it's one of those in the interim. You're just kind of like guessing at at at, at the rest of it. Uh, so this is one where that we talked with our client and typically we're not getting in there and doing physical inventories uh, with things. But you know, given that had, it had been a while since they had done a physical inventory, uh, we had some concern that their inventory was misstated and said, you know what, we need to kind of get them on the same page. We're going to do a physical at closing. It's just that that's going to lead to a whole lot of heartache uh, if and when we get to the point of saying, well, the, uh, you got a problem. You've been reporting it at X, but it's actually a lot less than X based on what we found. And, you know, so we got them out in front of it. it took some, you know, took some effort uh, to ultimately get the seller on board with that concept. But frankly, it was really for the seller's own good where we're saying, look, we don't want to spring a surprise on you in the 11th hour. We want to get out in front of this. Because we know that if we do spring that surprise, it's not going to be it's going to be at the detriment of the deal. It's not going to be at the just the detriment of the seller. Uh, so eventually they they did take our advice. They did realize that they had a they had a write down to do there. Uh, but the good thing was um, they could kind of you know take their medicine early on and, and and appreciate it wasn't you know at the at the finish line there that this was coming up. So it really sounds like you're you're managing the psychology of the deal as you go and knowing that this is one of those sort of hairy, can be uh, contentious areas, your expectation setting up front, that's part of your uh, your model, your, your your MO. You try to get that discussion as early in the uh, process flow as you can. And then you're just working on psychology with the with the sellers and ultimately with the buyers. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, it's a very, very, very fair statement. I mean, I think it's so much of his psychology. And, you know, when you think about a lot of where things break down, whether it's deals or other kind of, of issues, it's, uh, you know, it's oftentimes a lack of communication or a misunderstanding uh, and ultimately leads to broken trust. And I think in that case, you know, that, that, that puts some trust out there. It didn't The seller didn't necessarily love the result, 
but at the same time they understood it and they understand they understood how it helped having it at that stage of the deal as opposed to finding this out right at the end so that's a pretty typical deal that you see Sure. That's the typical type of stuff. And not necessarily always that the seller, the buyer is maybe, you know, say doing the right thing or having that. But I think the typical deal is you're going to find those issues that, that are not insurmountable. They're meaningful. They come up and it's just how you handle them. I and mean, it's a great, great point about the psychology. It's, it comes down to how you handle them. You can get around a lot of obstacles, but the, the one that you can't get around uh, oftentimes is broken trust. <laughs> For sure. Uh, I had another smart uh, mentor of mine that was telling me that, well, first, it's pretty common parlance that every deal dies three times and you can expect that the deals are going to die um, a few times anyway. But that trust is like um, a crack in the dam. You know, the first Absolutely. first thing that happens is just a dribble and the next thing that happens, it's a little bit of a stream. And if you have three strikes against you, that whole dam just falls apart. So I I I'm impressed by the uh, methodology that you guys are using and focusing on that psychology and expectation setting to make sure those trust bridges are strong before you try to march across them with a you know working capital kind of discussion. Let's finish on that positive note that you you know give us a, a stellar. Everything went right. It was a great deal. Everybody went home happy, and this is what you'd love to model all other working capital transactions around. Sure. So, um, no, it's, this is one that we talk about uh, in, in our firm, or at least our team, a number of times. It's, it's just one where it's like, wow, everything just finally lined up. You saw the value of some of the things that you could do in the preparation stage. Uh, so, in this case, this was a, let's say, a construction-oriented company. Um, lots of, like, project type of, type of work again. Uh, deal size, this, this closed and deal size was, I think around, again, around that 50, $60 million area. Um, you know, which is a lot of the times the deals we're working on are, are somewhere in that, in that neighborhood. Um, this is one where we worked with the seller. The seller was represented by uh, an investment banking intermediary who was terrific. Uh, they did, you know, they, they added a ton of value to, to the, to the process. Um, the, yeah, intermediary and us at RKL, we worked uh, on getting the company prepared prior to going to market. So they were working in terms of the, um, you know, the the SIM or investment book, whatever you want to call it, uh, other marketing materials, the buyers list. They spent a lot of time really going through that. And our role was to provide a sell side quality of earnings analysis, uh, which included not just the adjusted EBITDA, but also working capital and some other, you know, some other uh, related kinds of analysis. So this one was a great one where we could get out there. We put our position out there on on working capital. Um, it was reviewed fairly early on in the process. The buyer had their own uh, due diligence quality of earnings team come in, a uh, little bit larger firm. Uh, and you know, I think it's just that that part of the experience was because this firm did a really good job, um, you know, both in communicating. I think, you know, we were able to work together as, as we, as professionals that we probably should. It was more a function of trying to get it right. If there is such a thing as opposed to trying to squeeze every last nickel out one way or the other. Um, and so that was just, you know, it was just a great experience working, um, working with this, this firm, not that everything went 100% smooth, but you could tell that they were just trying to, you know, trying to do the right thing with it. They even had a couple of things that they picked up on later in the uh, analysis that went uh, went in the seller's favor. 
Uh, and we said, yeah, that's, that's, that sounds great. Thanks for, for bringing up a relatively minor, but at least it was something that kind of uh, showed some good faith there. Uh, so that's one that, that really, I'd say it went pretty smooth. I think the, the key takeaways there were the preparation that, that we and, and the investment banker did with the seller early on. The company was very well prepared uh, going into market. The company was frankly extremely well run well before any of us got involved. It's just, you know, somebody that, that's running the company that, that, that definitely appreciated and lived the philosophy of working on the business, not just working in the business. Uh, he was a Vistage member, um, you know, got engaged in those types of, of conversations and you know, just had the, the business really well positioned uh, early on. Uh, and then throughout, it's, you know, there's always the hiccups. There's always the chance that something dies. But you know, this one was relatively smooth throughout the process. That does sound like a great story. I'm going to, as we get ready to wrap up this episode, Article 2 of our Code of Ethics for Mergers and Acquisitions Intermediaries says that M&A advisors should keep him or herself informed of trends, of best practices, and of any changes affecting the M&A advisory services. My question to you is, how do we as intermediaries do just that? How do we stay informed and, and you know get the right uh, perspective, background, and trends on this subject with working capital? I think it's, you know, this is an area that there's no real textbook on it. Um, there's no real place that you can go and say, this is exactly how, how it is. It's not at all a black and white subject. It's a very, it's a heavily gray area. I think the, the big things, you know, how do you, how do you get informed? Uh, I think these types of podcasts and webinars and those types of sessions are terrific. I was thrilled to see that this was a topic at the uh, the May Orlando conference. Um, I think it's just a big one that that is we can get more clarity in the profession. Uh, it will help. I don't think it will ever be 100% clear, just like valuation is not 100% clear. It's not like you just go to a database, you look up the multiple and say, well, that's it. I'm done. I know it's four times or five times or eight times. You know, there's a lot that goes into it, but at least you're informed. You kind of know how it works in those cases. And I think working capital is catching up, but we still have a, a long way to go. And, you know, a little bit of a plug for, for advisors like us. I think, you know, as you're executing on deals, having folks that have been through this, having folks that are experienced it, folks that have come in and, and you know, at, at oftentimes succeeded and at times have failed, but learned something from it. Uh, I think that's an important part of the process then as, as well to at least make sure you're well uh, advised and informed. I think that's a great recap. And I do feel like I personally have learned some things here today just talking with you, Ryan, and uh, just walking through those three use cases that you gave us. It, it's really helpful to hear people talking about it. Um, I think the summary for today is uh, one, that preparation makes a difference for intermediaries, and that's early on. So looking at that working capital formula, looking at the business, how it's structured, what would be in, what would be out, and approaching it very similar to the way that we would approach a quality of earnings or a, or a recast in the, in the business brokerage world. Um, you know, and, and coming up with some idea, it doesn't have to be an exact number, but some idea of a methodology which seems to make sense and the seller is on board with. 
And it sounds like by your suggesting that, that also helps the uh, prepare the psychology and, and make the, uh, the environment a, a more expect, expecting. How do I say this? It, making the environment a little more friendly for uh, what could otherwise be some pretty contentious and, and difficult conversations. So psychology matters. Um, I definitely like your idea of front loading at the LOI. Uh, stage. So we get the expectation of the methodology we're going to use and then just not agreeing to any particular number too early because the number not only changes with every business model, but it changes with every passing week that that business is operating. And I think that's um, a great way to end it. Ryan, um, you have been tremendously helpful to our community by coming out here and spending an hour of your time and just kind of talking with us through this subject, which you obviously know very well. How can, uh, how can we get in touch with you? Where do we find you and your company? Uh, should we want to uh, do business with you in the future? Sure. So I uh, appreciate you uh, uh, giving me the chance to get that out there. Um, so our, we have a website, our firm is RKL. Um, it, the website is, www.rklcpa.com. Uh, that can take you to, to our firm's website. You can see the, the host of ways that we help businesses, not just in the transaction world, but, um, but you know, in many different ways outside of your standard you know, tax and audit type of, of accounting. Uh, we also have my, uh, in, my bio and contact information on that website. Uh, you can also uh, find me on, on LinkedIn uh, as well and uh, my email address for any listeners that want to contact directly, rhurst, H-U-R-S-T, at rklcpa.com. Thank you, Ryan. And for everyone who will be listening to this, not only today, but in the future, the show notes that we're posting online will have links to RKL, will have links to Ryan's bio, and we'll have some contact information out there, as well as links if you want to leave some feedback. So uh, feedback is very important. What we're trying to do here with our M&A source organization is serve you as the intermediary professional uh, and raise the bar and the standards of how we practice our profession. And uh, we need your feedback in order to make that better each day. So please visit our show notes, find those links, click on the one that you like, and we will be back again uh, in our next episode. We're going to we have a couple of really good topics lined up. We'll be announcing them through the newsletter. If you're not already subscribed, go out to masource.org and get subscribed to that newsletter and you will follow along. Thanks again, Ryan. It was great talking with you today. Any any final closing thoughts? A uh, pleasure speaking with you as 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 well. Uh, no, no, no parting thoughts. Just uh, much appreciate you having me on. All right, thank you, and I look forward to working with you at some point in the future. And you, thank you. All right, Ryan. Thank you for joining us for the M and A Source podcast. If you would like to learn more about M and A Source or would like to join, please visit M and A Sources website www.masource.org, where you can find a wealth of information to include information about M&A sources biannual conferences. Thanks again for joining. And if you enjoyed the show, we hope that you'll go to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Join us next time for another edition of the M&A Source Podcast.